If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello, and welcome to Art Dirt, the Glass Tire podcast where we talk about topical art topics. I'm William Saradet. I'm Jessica Fuentes. And today we're discussing the topic of images and art making that come out of or respond to violence, either violence from political conflicts or other traumatic events. And because this is an art podcast, we're going to discuss the artworks involved in in these conflicts, um, or artwork that are made as a direct response. And we'll just kind of talk about their differing strategies. So just before we hopped on to record, Jessica, you and I both kind of discussed how this is different than a discussion about protest art, which is a very strong vein within this kind of art making, um, art that reacts to traumatic events. One way to start this conversation is to touch on like the halcyons of modern painting with works like Francisco Goya's The Third of May, 1808, or equally as famous Picasso's Guernica. Those were both paintings made speedily in response to ongoing bloody conflicts, but there are also more collective responses to artistic protest um, and art making that responds to injustice and violence which we have seen in recent years with George Floyd murals overtaking many American downtowns in the summer of 2020. It's also worth mentioning that this topic of art responding to violence doesn't have to pertain to protests or include protests specifically, but there has been a lot of that lately, hasn't there, Jessica? Yeah, definitely. Um, We've talked, obviously, on Art Dirt recently about oil protesters in Europe, who have been uh, using art spaces, art galleries, and museums as places to protest. Um, And so that also comes up in some of the things that we'll talk about today. Um, But that is a little bit different than artists and creatives who are making artistic works, visual art, in response to violence. And that topic is kind of interesting because, as you stated, Jessica, the protest events are taking place in artistic institutions. But if you step back and look at their actions, maybe a little bit in a vacuum, it almost feels like performance. It feels like a creative tactic to a big problem. So we will talk about some discrete art objects, some individual works of art, but we can maybe parlay first into a couple recent uh, protest events that have happened in institutions. Not about oil, but about other current events, um, including mass protest at LACMA over Iranian human rights abuses, and 
There was also a separate protest by the Anonymous Artist Collective for Iran at the Guggenheim, which uh, protested the alleged police murder of Masa Amini. Just this past October is when that protest took place. Um, yeah, do you have any thoughts, Jessica? Yeah, and the LACMA protest just happened just happened earlier this month. And so I think it's interesting the choice of choosing cultural institutions for these kinds of conversations. I believe that both LACMA and the Guggenheim have been places that protesters have flocked to in the past as a place that is well-known, that has um, opportunities for strong visuals, um, and a place where they could easily get some traction and um, and attention for the causes that they're uh, trying to highlight. Yeah, if, you know, as a listener, if you're familiar with the Guggenheim's architecture, you'll know that giant open barrel that... Uh, starts at the bottom floor and then there's a perimeter staircase that spirals up and so you can maybe imagine the anonymous artist collective for iran's uh, approach was to take big super tall vertical red banners with slogans calling for um female freedom and female autonomy that just rolled all the way down uh the central kind of uh lobby vault And like you mentioned, Jessica, very strong visuals. I'm sure they, you know, I'm sure part of this is that the protesters know there's going to be an audience that day. Pictures will come out of it. It's a spectacle. It's a a good way to kind of, um, if you're going to unveil a message, both LACMA and the Guggenheim, I can imagine, would be great places to sort of get it out into the news cycle. And so maybe similarly, that also relates to the use of murals um, as these large public art pieces to draw attention, to make a statement, and to bring awareness to things that are going on. Um, Earlier, you mentioned murals of George Floyd um, and, you know, also we had... Just this summer, Texas artists who came together to paint murals of uh, school shooting victims in Uvalde. Um, And so, again, a response to violence, um, not necessarily a protest, um, but an opportunity to memorialize the young victims and and even the adult victims of that uh, terrible shooting in a way to bring people together. Um, It was really uplifting to see the artists across the state came together uh, to come out and show support for the community there. Among that collection of artists that responded to the Uvalde shootings with uh, a collection of murals was Bernardo Valerino from Fort Worth. Is that right? So his response was was separate from the mural paintings, um, and it was more immediate because um, obviously gathering artists to come together to paint murals is is a huge undertaking of work. Um, but what Bernardo was able to do in Fort Worth was that he pulled together 
um, local artists to create memorial ribbons. Um, and he invited 22 artists to, to participate in this performance art piece because there were 22 victims. And so um, each, each of the artists were representing the lives lost that day, um, and they spent the entire day together talking in conversation and creating countless small white memorial ribbons um, that then later went on view, I believe in Dallas, at Mountain View College. He's an artist who um, has focused a lot on trauma and violence. Um, And so the butterfly case is um, his newest body of work that speaks to genocides across the across the world and really kind of kicked off with a large scale installation piece last summer as part of Fort Worth Public Arts New Stories New Futures. So Bernardo Valerino is a great example of a Texas artist that kind of deals in these themes all the time and not just um, he's not just responding to uh, contemporary protest movements, although he works within them, um, given his participation in the Uvalde shooting uh, work. And his current show, The Butterfly Case, on view at Love Texas Art in Fort Worth, is open through January 7th. If any of our listeners would like to engage with his current body of work and see what an artist who's kind of constantly dealing in these themes, like how he approaches them. Yeah, he's done kind of, he's done so much work in this realm. He also had his exhibition, I Am Pain Ink Art. That was just earlier this year. And it was a performance where he had a butterfly tattooed onto him. Yes. Um, when he when he did the tattoo performance piece he created a video um, which is also on display as part of the butterfly case and he also made um, prints from his body from the tattoo ink and the blood and those prints are also available to be seen at the butterfly case on view right now since we've looked at both angles a little bit both the kind of collective action of producing work that has a strong message to an individual artist's approach to maybe a discrete event, a discrete conflict, or maybe something a little more broad, a little more sustained than, say, um, reacting to one event. I'm just wondering, do you have a preference as like an art viewer? Do you like to go see a big installation, a big, huge giant roll of paper uh, with a with a loud message on it being put on display by a grassroots group of people? Or do you maybe like to sit with an individual work on your own time in a quiet space? How, what do you respond to, whether it's in the streets or in the gallery? For me personally, when I'm engaging with a work of art that is in response to violence and in response to trauma. It's really important to have 
that quiet time to reflect and to take in the seriousness of what you're looking at and spending time with. And so for that reason, my initial thought is is how important it is to be able to have a, a quiet space uh, to engage with work like that. But there is also so much power in seeing people coming together um, to create larger things um, out, you know, in in everyday places, not just confined to installations and galleries and museums. What about you? I yeah, I think there's shades of spontaneity in different grassroots modes of making art. Um, And so by that, all I mean is like, if I'm looking at a collective, a grassroots expression of reaction or protest to something, um, I think however fresh or however like actually of the street it feels kind of has an impact on me versus like, you know, if the institution accepts or invites or uh, even, you know, kind of like co-manages an act of speech, I don't think that compromises it. I just think that changes kind of like what the message is capable of doing. There's a certain kind of like electricity that comes out of a big impromptu reveal from a group of people that were able to get into a space and maybe subvert that space for a minute. Um, So uh, does that make sense? It's just kind of a difference of like, if I'm looking at, if I'm looking at art that is like an act of protest, I'm kind of constantly gauging like, all right, but is this sponsored or not? Um, Because if it's not sponsored, that feels a lot more, just brave and like pure in a way. Yeah, yeah, I definitely understand that. Um, having that type of institutionalized voice behind behind any kind of artwork, um, really, um, yeah, it kind of throws into question not necessarily the intentionality behind the work, um, but yeah, the the energy and the spontaneity, perhaps. I'm just thinking of how institutionally important the painting Guernica is and I don't mean to take any power from it but of course my first exposure to that would have been um, probably in the late 90s early 2000s flipping through a book and reading like oh this painting is very important and it and it chronicles a, a very serious moment of strife and you know that's that's just something that I think a first-time viewer, let alone a, perhaps a child, it's like kind of hard to get that across after the fact versus living through the kind of like Occupy Wall Street um, protests and more recent protests as well. It's, you know, you just kind of like feel like you're a part of history because you're able to get closer to it. And it's also kind of happening in front of you. In 20, 30, 50 years from now, when people are looking back at art books that are recounting the protest art that were made in our time, um, do you think there will be that kind of disconnect for younger viewers in the future who are looking back at these works? I mean, I personally think it's 
at least kind of inevitable. Um, I don't know that you can recreate the experience of walking downtown Dallas completely boarded up with plywood on every storefront and they're all paintings memorializing police brutality. Um, You can take them off the buildings, you can put them in a gallery space, you can put them in a museum, Um, but you just kind of can't recreate that moment in time, I guess, is my only point, which is not a discouragement or anything, but, you know. Sure. Do you think that um, the ubiquitousness of um, videos and just kind of everyday videotaping of what's happening right now and documenting that could help people in the future understand? So that's a great question, whether like living in a time where documentation is kind of like just completely ubiquitous, it's everywhere, Um, partially because so many of us have phones. There's other factors, but that's like a really big one. Um, My short answer is... Sure, I think it's helpful to have like high fidelity video of everything and everywhere for historical purposes of all kinds. But I'm going to go on a longer tangent to answer your question too, if that's okay. So just this past October, I had the opportunity to meet with Los Angeles artist Samira Yamin as she was starting her tenure at the Galveston Artist Residency. And that's on the Gulf Coast. It's in Galveston. One body of work that she has produced is called All the Skies Over Syria, which features collaged photographs of the Syrian sky, which are cut out of a collection of Time magazines ranging from 2011 to 2019. The main thrust of the work is to take a sort of static, linear depiction of a place of conflict. Syria is just one nation within the general Middle East area. Um, She's trying to take this photojournalistic, newsworthy documentation of a place under conflict and try to make it dynamic, try to make it less one directional. This meaning that we only ever hear about places of conflict when they're in conflict. And that's sort of a determination by like the news apparatus and the media, like, but also the news viewer is not entirely uh, like left out of the equation either. Like we sort of have expectations of things once we're informed about them and then we continue to kind of seek out information in that same regard. So in this body of work, she would cut up the skies of these photographs, which are depicting Syria, and then order them by value, so light to dark, and arrange them on a board, and then exhibit the work. And because the work is photographic prints on magazine paper, and there's no treatment to the the individual little triangles that she's cut up, they're going to fade over time. Because it's an art object, it will only be exposed to light when it's being exhibited. And if you work in art, you know that art objects don't really live out in the world all the time like, like we do. They're in storage, they're cared for, they're valued. Um, so... Samira felt strongly that 
the way that an art object can interact with representation and depiction is actually kind of unique and can be played with in ways that probably no other consumer product at least can. And I just thought that was such a like thoughtful way of interacting with art and conflict. So your question, Jessica, is like, is more documentation more helpful for kind of getting a message across to maybe generations past or generations to come in the future? And like the short answer is that, you know, more documentation is certainly a tool, but by Samira's estimation, it's kind of in line with Susan Sontag's theory about war photojournalism, which is that it's a double-sided tool. You can use it for nefarious purposes. It's not always altruistic. And so, of course, leave it to an artist to kind of like thread the needle in between those things and just see what you can kind of affect with your strategies. Um, and that's that's the kind of thing I really appreciate uh, about art in general, but especially art about like serious topics. I think that works like Samira's can be really powerful without focusing on the actual violence, the actual violent images. Um, and I think that, that that is something that is a fine line to walk and requires viewers to to do a little bit more to engage, to read, to understand, to take the time um, to really look closely and think about the work. Um, but I, I do think that that's, that subtlety is a really important approach when you look at kind of the, the many different ways that artists um, respond to violence and trauma. It makes me think of um, the Felix Gonzalez Torres works where viewers are invited to come up and take a piece of candy um, from the artwork. And, you know, the original artwork for, for one of the pieces, the original weight of the candy was the weight of Felix Gonzalez Torres's lover um, who died from AIDS. And so as people came up and took the candy away they were taking away parts of him in in that way um and so it's easy to see a work like that and say oh this is kind of a fun piece where you get to take something with you but it asks more of the viewer in the same way that Samira's work does to think more deeply about what is being presented to you and what it means the depth of it so, Jessica, what I want to ask you, um, you are our news editor. I mean, just like all of us, you see a lot, you read a lot, you write a lot. Um, but given that you're focusing on news, sometimes you come across these topics uh, just in a more sustained way than maybe your average art viewer. Is there a shift in representation in protest art either in what the work literally looks like or the people that are making it? Have you noticed anything? You know, I'm not sure if I would say that there's any more of a shift than there always is in art in general. Um, because protest art, just like all other forms of art, um, 
is going to be a direct reflection of the time and place that it comes out of. And so because of that, it is it is constantly shifting. Um, and so I guess I would say maybe n- not more so than than art in general is shifting. In past art dirts, we've kind of touched on Just Stop Oil, partially because they're persistent and they seem to be strategically staying in the news. Um, So I was just curious, your thoughts. And then I think as a secondary question, one that we could maybe both get into is what makes an artwork successful that is touching on violence, trauma, or injustice? Uh, What kind of works and maybe what doesn't, if anything sticks out to you? Well, um, I guess as an art educator, (laughs) for me, I think that a successful work, especially one that is depicting violence or is in response to violence or trauma, pushes people to go and learn more. I think that can look a lot of different ways because there are so many different kinds of people out in the world who are interested and drawn in by different kinds of things and respond to different types of things. So I'm not sure if if in my mind there's like a particular thing that is um, most successful, but I think that success can be judged by whether or not that work pushes people to want to know more. What do you think? Yeah, I think for me, after um, after seeing Balenciaga's Winter 2022 collection earlier this year, which responded to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, um, the runway show happened pretty soon after the invasion, but it would have been in plans for like months and months and months, um, which kind of immediately called criticism from outsiders saying, oh, you're kind of tacking on this this aesthetic onto your show, which is insensitive. And when I watched it for myself, the feeling I got was that the show actually didn't exclude anyone from the conversation. And it actually gave me more like emotion and like response to connect with the tone of the day which was that which was despair and concern and a loss of hope and I weirdly the show like gave me a sense of hope which I didn't think that a fashion show was capable of doing um so I mean I would totally agree with you Jessica my own personal spin on that is just like I've made message art before If you've been to art school, you've probably made message art. It feels good to do. I understand the impulse to be bold. I think what is like requires a little more skill or a little more creativity is like, how can you do this without actually excluding people from the message? Um, And when that is done successfully, I find it really compelling and really interesting. And with that, I would like to close with a quote that I pulled from uh, the page for Samira Yamin's exhibition, All the Skies Over Syria. And it states, quote, 
what to do with such knowledge as photographs bring of faraway suffering, close quote. And that's Susan Sontag from Regarding the Pain of Others. As always, thank you for listening. We will link past Art Dirt episodes that are relevant to this topic, as well as other readings and news articles. If you would like, uh, please be sure to check our calendar listings for exhibitions and art events across the state. We will be back in two weeks with another Art Dirt episode. And until then, go see some art. Go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2022.